been found guilty of extreme carelessness in carrying out your duties. By leaving open the Y-valve in the heat exchange unit, you could have caused an explosion that would have been fatal, not only to the human race, but also to our friends, the monoids. The lightest sentence I can pass is one of miniaturization. Prepare the minifier. Sentence will be carried out immediately. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this iconic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're discussing the actually not missing story, The Ark. Mm-hmm. I'm your host, and if I'm never number one, I'm just going to take out everyone else starting with number two, as that's the only way to be sure. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. My co-host is Guy, who definitely was not patient zero for any recent pandemic. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So... Well, there's many things to talk about here, but I got to say, we started this season uh, with Galaxy 4 and Doctor Who predicting MAGA and the gender wars. (laughs) (laughs) And in this story, we now get a pandemic, including a lab leak theory and vaccine debates and dorky maths. (laughs) Clearly, Doctor Who was way, way ahead of its time. (laughs) And it's our first live action in forever, right? I mean, we've done. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see, uh, good to see Hartnell again. Yeah. Well, don't get used to it. <laughs> uh, and it's the first full Dodo story, our new companion. Mm hmm. And uh, well, I'm going to talk about her more. We start to see her get kicked around right at the beginning, right? She sort of <laughs> causes all the bad stuff in this story, and there's some other things. And I got to say, and, and um, I feel really bad for the director of this. I saw an interview with him about this because he knew that his job was on the line and that he might get fired from the BBC. And so in doing this story, he went all out. He wanted to show that they should keep him on as a director. Mm-hmm. And if you know that when you're watching it, and I'll, I'll probably make a couple of comments as we go along, you can see like, he's like, Oh, look, I'm doing some overhead shots. Oh, look, here's some live animals. Oh, here's a great, you know, jungle. <laughs> it's like, it's so clearly like, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> so did it work? No, in fact, <laughs> uh. and this is so cruel. Right. Bef- so, you know, they, during the week they rehearse and then on Friday they record the live, right? So for the last episode, on the Friday, right before they started filming live, on the set in front of everybody, the BBC fired him. Mm. And not just fired him, they permanently banned him from the BBC. They're like, you will never, oh. ever be hired by the BBC again. And Holy I don't know smokes. why that is. I don't know what their problem was. But to do that right before he's about to record an episode, to do that in front of all the people that he's directing. I mean, that's such oh, a cruel yeah, you, thing to do. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a supervisory position and you need to choose somebody out, that should always be done behind a door. Yeah. So whatever the reason, the BBC really had it in for this guy <laughs> and I feel <laughs> bad for him. I, I totally understand where he's coming from. Oh boy. Now I'm going to call back to when we started this podcast. Remember I said, you know, I'm the jaded doctor who guy. I can't tell what's good or not anymore. And <laughs> I need a new a person with a fresh perspective. So this is one of those, you know, I don't want you to, um, say your conclusion because we want to, 
get our listeners to go to the end of the episode because that's that's how we get paid, right? <laughs> reach the end of the episode. Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's all going into a bank account, and don't worry, it's coming. <laughs> oh, all right, good. So here's the deal. This story is a guilty pleasure of mine. I actually think there's a lot of great stuff about it uh, with a couple of uh, maybe slightly downsides. So I'm going to need you to, you know, determine whether I just have nostalgia or, or or insanity or whatever. Also, I'll give you, you know, I'm always giving you these quizzes unfairly because I don't give you warning. I'll give you a chance up front to say one of my favorite moments in all of Doctor Who occurs toward the end of the story. Can you just up front, would you have any guess what, what that might be? Well, I don't think it was toward the end of the story, but I know there's uh... – when uh, when Dodo is getting out of the landing craft, uh, you get to uh, see the tights that she's wearing pretty well. <laughs> that was probably one of my favorites. I'm going to have to go back and check. I didn't even notice, which just shows that I'm a wholesome, upstanding person and you're a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> well, well, when we get there, I'll point it out and see what you think. Uh, okay. Right. You know, there there is um we do see a a smoking planet at one point, which uh the the, the special effects don't really follow the laws of physics since <laughs> the smoke trails are way out of proportion, but uh, but it's still kind of a memorable yeah. Uh, effect. Yeah, I want to talk about the special effects we get there. I think uh, there's some interesting stuff about that. Okay, well, with that, let's get into our story. Our first episode is the Steel Sky. Yeah, well, it starts off, we've got a big lizard. Uh, I think uh, we we find out at one point it's a monitor lizard. <laughs> we get a few seconds of that, and then this bird comes along and hops right on the lizard's head, and then it squawks. <laughs> and uh, it's a, amusing. I mean, you couldn't stage that if you tried, probably. You'd have to do a bunch of takes. Yeah, they got I a think. pretty great shot. And again, this is, you know, having these live animals was part of the director, you know, trying to <laughs> prove himself, you <laughs> know. Yeah. yeah. And then we see this uh this creature it's humanoid, you know, stands like a like a human, but uh it has this long shaggy hair like beetle hair except it's also covering most of its face. So you can't see where on a human you would see the eyes and nose. Mm. The hair goes down that far. It does seem to have a mouth at first and I I can't tell if it's actual mouths in all the scenes, or if sometimes it's a mouth and sometimes it's like a prosthetic mouth, but whatever kind of mouth it is, it has an eye in it. Mm -hmm. It's like if you took a, uh, it, it, it's probably made of glass or plastic or something, but, uh, you know, picture taking like a hard boiled egg and drawing an iris and a pupil <laughs> on it and sticking it in your mouth. It's, uh, so it's, I, I saw that and I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this is <laughs> well. And this is the this is the problem with this episode, right? Even though I think there's a lot of really interesting things here, you got these guys. They're called the monoids, and it literally is the actors holding an eye in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, and and actually, the more used to it you get, uh, the better it looks. So I'll give it that. But initially, I was just. Yeah. Yeah, right, and they're called of. monoid, and apparently there's like a mm -hmm. mathematical concept of monoid. So when I was working at Apple and they were like emailing around about monoids, and, and I literally <laughs> sent a picture of these and said, this is a monoid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, they're uh, they're they're a little freaky looking, and also they have these outfits that go. They're kind of like robes, but imagine somebody who's wearing pants, but the pants are just one piece. So it's like okay. a tube covering most well, of their legs. We'll see more of this later, but when you look at their feet and their legs and how they identify themselves later, does that remind you of any past Doctor Who story? Uh, oh, the, the, the floppy feet reminds yeah. me of the, uh, is it the sensorites? Yeah, yeah. And remember, yeah. they had those sashes to identify themselves, and, and now we're going to have something similar in this. So, yeah, there's a lot oh, of similarities. Yeah. And not only that, the sensorite story was another kind of virus story, right, That you know, where the doctor had to, to come up yeah, with a cure Yeah, that's that. right. I was thinking that we'd seen something else where he came up with a cure, yeah. And they have this long, shaggy hair. I think the sensorites <laughs> had that, too. Yeah. So, yeah, there are some similarities here. Anyway, we see this creature walking through the jungle, and because because this robe goes all the way down to the ankles, these creatures take kind of halting, yeah. tiny steps. So the TARDIS materializes very nearby, and Dodo is the first person to come out, and she's wearing this outfit that on the top, it looks like a... It looks like a Crusades outfit. It's got the fleur-de-lis emblems on the front and so on. And then she's wearing these really tight tights on the <laughs> bottom, which look like they might be part of the outfit. I don't know if the Crusaders actually wore tights or oh, not. But and it's it kind of weird because, be. you know, there is an earlier story of the Crusades and, and, or Crusade, and, and you know, which we're going to cover at some point. But there's no reason for her to be wearing this costume. They just came from – in fact, she came from modern – England, right? So it's really right. bizarre that she's coming out in a in a Crusades costume. Yeah. Oh yeah. We will get an explanation momentarily, yeah. though. She comes out into the jungle and she sneezes, and then Stephen comes out behind her and he tries to keep her from wandering too far. And she's she's just she's that new a, companion doesn't really understand what's going on yet, right? So now he's yeah, the one she, trying to <laughs> explain it. To she her. she doesn't even believe all that he said about traveling through time and space and all that. Which of course is ironic because you know Stephen was the guy doing that uh, a few stories <laughs> back, right? <laughs> yeah. So he's trying to rein her in, and she's being all sassy with him. And uh, she thinks this jungle. She thinks she recognizes it. Uh, she thinks it's a zoo she went to outside <laughs> London on a school field trip. And I want to say, and again, giving I don't know if it's a, I guess the director's credit because you know he wouldn't have had that much to do with the setting. But this is a really good jungle. I mean, this is way better than usual. It's not just you know a few oh, yeah. leaves and trees in a in a flat plain. This really they went all out on this thing. Yeah, it's it's not bad. I mean, from the lighting and so forth, you can tell that it's a set, but uh, but it's well done. I mean, you remember it, back in the Dalit days when you know there's like two trees and and people are slapping uh, Su Susan in the face with <laughs> with leaves in order to make it look like there's some depth, and this actually has depth. Yeah. Oh yeah. It turns out that Dodo can identify pretty much every local creature that she sees, <laughs> and they're all Earth creatures. Which Stephen finds implausible, and the doctor emerges from the TARDIS, and he thinks she might be right. He thinks this might indeed be Earth. He's looked at the scanners and so forth, and he's found some similarities. Mm -hmm. So then we switch to this futuristic courtroom scene, and it turns out that this room they're in isn't just their courtroom, but it's sort of the main room of the place where they are. Yeah, it's kind of the control room. And I got to say, this is another really good set. It's really big. And also, 
they have some pretty clever backgrounds that make it look bigger than it is, mm-hmm. and we spend a lot of time here. Yeah, they have one uh, one particular backdrop where you see a, a this vast ceiling going off into right. the distance with a bunch of lights, right. roundels, kind of like in the walls of the TARDIS, except they're lights in the ceiling. So in this courtroom, we have normal humans, and we also have some of these shaggy eye-mouth creatures that we saw just a moment ago. And it turns out there's a guy, a human, who is in trouble. Mm-hmm. There's a man sitting up roughly where a judge would sit in a courtroom, and he calls himself your commander. You know, at, at first first acquaintance, it seems like he's going to be a real jerk. Yeah, he's um, a, and he's probably, I think he's the oldest person we see. He's probably like in his 60s or something. Yeah, I think so. He says that this poor guy was careless. Uh, he left a valve open that if, if it wasn't caught in time, it could have caused disaster for everyone. And he goes on to say that the lightest sentence he can pass is to shrink the guy hmm. down to microscopic size with a device called the minifier, which is uh, uh, kind of a Terry Nation. <laughs> Actually, the naming and all this, I, I swear they must have brought Terry Nation in for, for <laughs> consulting. <laughs> he didn't write this, but it's sure like he did. <laughs> and he goes on to say that he's after he's shrunk down, in 700 years he's going to be reverted to normal size. Um, and it turns out this isn't the lightest sentence he could pass because later on we'll we'll hear that there's three sentences that can be given, which are basically the expulsion, shrinking, or whatever lesser penalty you want to give. So <laughs> I think shrinking is not that much of a sentence because presumably you're not conscious during that time. So it doesn't really matter that you're shrunk yeah. for 700 years. You know, you well, would just yeah, wake up we'll, the next day. We'll find out that these people have normal lifespans. Mm-hmm. So the 700 years is going to be hibernation, but we don't know that yet. Yeah. So a young lady who's the commander's daughter, she rushes to her father's died and she pleads for him to be lenient. Uh, but the commander says the only alternative is expulsion, which, again, we'll see contradicted later. The defense counselor, uh, you know, it seems like they don't really have formal lawyers. They just have people who sort of volunteer to act as the defense. Yeah, it's, it's very, you know, ancient Greece sort of thing, you know. <laughs> he thanks the commander for his clement sentence. You know, it could have been could have been worse. And the daughter says goodbye to the uh, convicted man. And it, you get the feeling that they were probably in love. Mm. <laughs> it's not 100% sure. At the very least, they were friends. <laughs> it's always uh, annoying when your your dad freezes your boyfriend for 700 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, the sentence is carried out right away. They put him in the minifier and shrink him down. And it's... um. It's not a great special effect, but I, I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, what are the alternatives? And there's, I mean, there's really not much well, else. Well, but it's funny because, again, this was a case where the director was trying to prove himself, right? So he wanted this to be fancy. And I think it actually looks pretty good. But, you know, it's just yeah. the, the way they do it is literally just pulling the camera back each point, you know, to or, or moving it in whichever direction so that he would get smaller in in the lens. Um, oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was... I was wondering if they, I was thinking maybe they just took the image and, and gradually, you know, shrunk it down. Uh, but, but either, however they do it, yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's, 
It's not bad. It's I don't know. Just doesn't really <laughs> grab you. So maybe, so maybe you would have fired him too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I well, I, I'll, I'll save. I'll okay. save my verdict for later. I don't want to play. You know, show my hand just okay. yet. So after he's been shrunk, one of these shaggy creatures makes some hand gestures to the prosecutor. Apparently, they can't actually speak. And the prosecutor relays the message to the commander that, that this creature thanks the commander on behalf of the monoids. So mm-hmm. he's a monoid. They're all monoids with the shaggy hair and the eye mouth. And and, and again, I thought they pretty committed to the idea that the humans, we'll see they're called guardians, communicate with the monoids through sign language. And, you know, they kind of, they're pretty consistent about that. And it looks pretty realistic. Mm-hmm. Then we go back outside. We can see that an elephant is coming <laughs> through the jungle. And I thought, oh, there's some nice, you know, stock footage or whatever. But turns out it's actually on the set because Dodo and the doctor and Steven go up and they start petting it. And this is one of the big things the director was doing, again, to prove himself because he's like, oh, I've got a live element on the set. And the thing that you got to realize <laughs> that he talks about in his interview is, well, if you have an elephant, you got to put it somewhere. <laughs> so bef- the night before they shot this, they've got this elephant. It's got to be somewhere. <laughs> and they didn't have anywhere to put it. So literally outside of his apartment in a trailer, he's got the elephant. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so he went through all this hassle and, you know, personally babysat an elephant, et cetera, and they still fired him. <laughs> so- <laughs> But he did manage to make uh, one of the few season three uh, uh, story arcs that isn't lost to history. Yeah. Or the visuals aren't lost to history. So he's got that going for him anyway. So the doctor says this is an Indian elephant, and uh, which is further uh, confirmation that they may be on Earth. But then he notices that the jungle doesn't have a sky. It just has a lighted roof. And then he says, plus something else. And he looks down and bends over, and it turns out that he stepped in some elephant food. <laughs> and uh, I'm kidding. Well, he does bend down, but it, he does it because the ground seems to be trembling. He says it feels like a mechanical vibration. Mm-hmm. So he speculates that this is an indoor nature park, even though it's it's bigger than any indoor nature park he's acquainted with. It's uh, That might be just what it is. Dodo sneezes again, and the the doctor chastises her for uh, for not using a handkerchief, and then he complains about her wearing these crusader clothes because <laughs> she rummaged through the doctor's wardrobe and didn't even ask permission. Yeah, she just looked around, put them on. So he's a uh, he's a little little cross with her, not terribly, and she uh, she recovers uh, from being mildly chewed out. Very quickly. And this is our second reference in two stories to the Doctor having some kind of costume uh, room, right? <laughs> right, right. The monoid, the eye-mouth creature, is hidden in the trees nearby, and he watches the crew as they move on through the jungle. Then we're back in the courtroom, which is the main room, we'll find out later. The monoid that we just saw, he comes in and reports to the second-in-command, Zentos, who's also known as the Freshmaker. <laughs> Sorry, that's, a, that's probably an outdated joke. Hmm. Mentos used to have an advertising. Oh, okay. I was like, wow, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, you, you probably remember the things where they'd like 
the people would do something obnoxious and then they'd they'd hold up a a packet of mentos as if to say hey it's all right i've got mentos don't yeah worry about i may it. have to look this up on youtube i think i missed this one <laughs> oh it was it was a famous commercial but i, I it was a long time ago now, 80s or 90s. <laughs> Something tells me I'll be putting in a quote. <laughs> <laughs> There's a catchy theme song that goes with it. It doesn't matter what comes, fresh goes better in life. With mental fresh and full of life. Nothing gets to you, staying fresh, staying cool. With mental fresh and full of Mentos, the fresh maker. Anyway, Zentos gets the report from uh, the monoid that there are intruders. And they have a big screen that's connected mm -hmm. to a security camera so they can actually watch these intruders. They see the doctor and the rest of them on the big screen. And one of the themes of this whole story is they use screens a lot. And I think it's probably the mm -hmm. first time we've really seen that. I mean, they have the you know, the sensor, the monitor in the TARDIS, and we occasionally see a little tiny bit of video on that. But in this story, they use screens a whole lot. Yeah, and some of the big uh, plot events are actually revealed through the screen. Right. And since they're usually having to do things live or, you know, I mean, this is not easy, right? Because it's not like today where you would literally just stick a screen in. I mean, you have to do a bunch of trickery every time you're showing one of these screens. Oh, yeah. So the commander decides that these strangers are to be invited not arrested but invited <laughs> to come speak with the commander out in the jungle the doctor's looking at a painting on the rocks it's a it's in the style kind of of a cave painting except it's not in a cave it's a two-headed zebra as far as i can recall i don't think that ever actually goes anywhere we don't see a two-headed yeah. zebra but a very loud alarm goes off all around them so they go hide in a cave because they suspect that they've been They've been spotted. In the cave, Dodo almost sneezes, but Stephen suppresses her. And this this is a long sneeze suppression. It looks almost <laughs> like he's hugging her, like, like you know, covering mm. her face with his chest or something. I think he's actually just holding up a hand or something. But, uh, but the angle that it's shot at, it just looks like they're standing there almost embracing for about <laughs> a half a minute. And finally, he lets her go. And they're... You know, and you don't, I, I'll give him credit, you don't get the obvious payoff where as soon as he backs away, she sneezes. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they discuss that they're going to try to sneak back to the TARDIS and get out of there, then she does sneeze. <laughs> so then they get out of the cave, and Stephen spots a structure in the distance, and the doctor takes one look at it and realizes they're in a spaceship. And as soon as he realizes that... Uh, we see that camouflage just a few feet away from <laughs> our crew. Uh, there's a bunch of monoids that have been crouching down in the jungle, and they stand up and raise these long sticks that look like they could be threatening. So then we go back to the courtroom, and it's uh, which is the main room, and it's a little while later, presumably, because all the introductions have been made, and uh, the doctor and his friends are talking to these other folks. The commander is skeptical of what the doctor says about the TARDIS. He says that time travel was attempted in the 27th segment of time, <laughs> but it was unsuccessful. 
Uh, he confirms that there, this is a spaceship. He shows Stephen a diagram of it on the control panel, and uh, it's bigger than anything Stephen has, Stephen has seen before. The commander explains that everybody on this ship, or at least the humans on this ship, are from Earth. Mm. And the monoids joined them at one point. They came from a dying planet, uh, which was kind of coincidental because the Earth also was dying, mm. which is why the ship was built. Uh, the Earth is going to burn and be pulled into the sun. And Stephen realizes at this point that there are millions of years in the mm -hmm. future. And I want to say, uh, you know, one of the things I think is interesting about this whole story is that to a degree that's unusual for Doctor Who, it's a true science fiction story with many, many elements of science fiction. So this is what we call a generation ship, right? A huge mm -hmm. spaceship that people are going to be on for hundreds of years until they till they reach another location. And that's a very classic uh, science fiction story. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was used very recently, actually, in Alien Covenant, I mm. think. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old chestnut at this point. There's happens frequently in science fiction nowadays. Zentos, at this point, he says that he thinks the intruders could be shapeshifters, <laughs> not really humans at all. So... It's shaping up like, uh, as so often seems to happen in Doctor Who, there's going to be the guy who thinks, we can't trust these people, <laughs> they're dangerous. And the commander thinks that Dodo's cold is fascinating uh, because <laughs> such diseases were eliminated long, long ago. So you can probably imagine where that's leading. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Zentos instructs a monoid to get information about the TARDIS. He's having his little side conversation. <laughs> the commander explains that the Doctor and crew are from the first segment of time, and it's now the 57th segment of time. <laughs> and somehow from this, the Doctor calculates they must have jumped ahead at least 10 million years. Mm -hmm. And the, the commander doesn't give him a lot of information. I, I, think, I think the Doctor... Mentions that he was from the, or, or maybe it's the commander who mentions the doctor was from the, the segment that contained the Trojan War and the Dalek invasion <laughs> of Earth. <laughs> so somehow, just from those few scattered references, the doctor figures, now I, I actually spent way more time than I should have trying to think about this. The doctor is figuring the length of 55 segments of time plus unknown fractions of the first and 57th segments. They figures all that together is greater than or equal to 10 million years. <laughs> so one segment could equal anywhere from, or be greater than or equal to about 175,000 to 182,000 years. But as I said, he's just pulling out of this, <laughs> pulling this out of his butt because uh, he just, he just didn't have enough information to go on. <laughs> Once again, I, I think you put way more thought into this than the writers did. So. <laughs> they just possibly. thought it would be cool at certain points to say, oh, the 10th segment of time, the 50th segment of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. So the commander says the trip still has 700 years to go by the doctor's system of measurement, which is what he meant by the sentenced man being mm. shrunk for 700 years. He says their destination planet which I think was called Refusus. I didn't put mm -hmm. it in my notes here. Yep. Uh, Refusus 2, I believe. Uh, it was chosen by Audio Space Research, and they know <laughs> nothing about it except that there's 
uh, something living on it. It seems like a pretty big gamble to take here. Yeah, yeah. But I'll also say again, I'm not sure how much of a sentence it is to to shrink that guy for 700 years because they expect at the end of 700 years to reach a habitable planet. So I would be like, huh, do I want to stay on a spaceship for 700 years or do I want to wake up tomorrow on a habitable planet? Uh, to me, I would probably choose the latter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably uh, he probably got the better better end of the deal. Stephen says, so you had to bring at least two of everything. And Dodo says, like the Ark. Uh, and the commander doesn't get the reference. Yeah, you know, those, those ancient uh, Earth religions. <laughs> yeah. So so because the commander doesn't get the reference, I, I assume that, that in this 57th segment of time, uh, Christianity is extinct and Satan has won the battle for humanity's <laughs> souls, which is unfortunate. The commander explains that the rest of humanity uh, has been shrunk to microcell size for storage aboard the Ark. He tells his daughter Meliam to show Dodo and Steve the statue they're building, while he shows the doctor the control panel. Uh, and this statue, it's only, only the feet are built so far, but when it's finished, it's going to be fairly big. Uh, it's being constructed by hand using ancient methods, then it will take the remaining 700 years to complete. So, now, from what we see of the statue, it's not even going to be 70 feet tall. <laughs> but if we're generous and say that it will be 70 feet, that means the statue will grow one foot every decade. So yeah, well, what I think we see here is that unions have uh, made it aboard the ship. So. <laughs> <laughs> could yeah. be, could be. And uh, this statue will be made of Gregarian rock, a substance that will last forever. <laughs> I, I don't think that ends up being an important detail at all. In fact, later we are we get a direct contradiction of the idea that Gregarian rock will last forever. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll get to that. So another alarm sounds now, and a monoid drives in an electric cart, which uh, I think it's probably just an actual electric cart, but they've added some sort of God awful sound effect to it. <laughs> and it goes very and, slowly. <laughs> and it's very slow, yeah. Uh, and it's even slower in reverse. It's really slow then. But the monoid is, who's driving the cart, he's hauling in another monoid who's lying down in the back of the cart. Uh, and it turns out that that monoid is sick. And just as this is revealed, suddenly uh, the commander starts to feel a little ill. He's feeling feverish or hot. Uh, he says it's too hot in here or something like that. And so he's, he's taken ill as well. And Zentos observes it must be Dodo's cold. Mm -hmm. So the doctor takes Stephen aside and he points out that these people, since they cured the disease so long ago, they have no resistance to this cold. And the doctor says, it's all our fault, and I should have foreseen it. <laughs> and knowing, knowing his general scientific skill, he probably should have foreseen mm. it. But, oh, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, he, he did not enforce social distancing or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so an assistant observes that the sick monoid who was just carted in has now died. And Zentos invokes the special galactic law to arrest the visitors. Yeah, I'm not quite sure who signed up for this galactic law, but okay. <laughs> so Meliam asks what's going to happen to her father, who has just taken ill. 
Zentos replies, he may die, but then they all may. And he says, in which case it was pointless leaving. And on a scanner screen, we see a planet. Uh, it isn't clear why we see this planet, but we'll find out that this is like a scanner view of Earth. Yeah, and I think this is this is an unfortunate deficiency of what they could do at the time visually, because they want you to know it's Earth, but you just can't tell. And I, the first time I watched the story, I had no idea mm-hmm. what we were looking at, right? <laughs> yeah. And that is the... Uh, not much of a cliffhanger at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, see, some kind of ball or planet floating in space, and that's our <laughs> suspenseful ending. Well, next up is the plague. So we see Dodo. She's depressed. She says, it's all my fault. If I'd known it would be like this, I'd never have come. <laughs> and Stephen asks a very valid question, right, especially when we've been experiencing lately on planet Earth. He, he asks the doctor, do you think this has happened before, that we've carried an infection from one place or time to another? You know, totally valid question. And we know the ex- the exploration of the planet in, you know, the past has caused people to introduce things to each other and, and all mm-hmm. that. And meanwhile, the guardian Xenos is watching video screens and he's seeing Mono is dropping like flies. We see about five different ones. And every single time he says, and that's another, and that's another. (laughs) Okay, we got it. Uh, In the commander's sick room, we learn that the vaccine for this illness was lost in the 10th time segment. So that sucks. There was like a war. I forget what they call it. I don't know if you remember, but. And they never had to reinvent it in the yeah. intervening or the subsequent 47 time. <laughs> yeah, which is millions <laughs> of years. Right? <laughs> and the commander, because he knows he may be dying, he stresses to his daughter that the only thing that matters is getting everyone to refuse us. And then the crew of the TARDIS hears a funeral dirge. You know, they're they're like stuck in a room they've been put in, kind of a prison. They see the monoids carrying a mummified monoid on their shoulders. And he is eventually ejected out of an airlock. And there's something I thought was really compelling here with a lot of their space special effects. This is a couple years before 2001 was released. And these are very similar to 2001, obviously not in quality, but where Mm. you have kind of a silence to space and kind of a slowness. And we just see like, you know, this thing get ejected out and then it's kind of pulled jankly on a string. But but it, for a t- for a, a kid's science fiction TV show, I think the approach they took here is is surprising and really does tie into two thousand and one. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I didn't realize that was in two thousand and one because I haven't seen it since I was probably a teenager. In Alien, the original Alien, nineteen seventy nine, they do much the same thing with Kane's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I guess it's. Uh, that was probably influenced by 2001, but right. then again. Well, and I, and since since 2001 this. was a couple of years after this, I'm going to claim that once again, Doctor Who inspired that, which is not mm-hmm. actually impossible because Kubrick oh, sure. was British and he liked watching TV. He, he quite well may have seen this. Mm-hmm. The other thing it brought up for me was Star in Star Trek Spock's death. Remember when they put him in this black uh, coffin and ejected it into space? Yeah, I remember him being in that uh, plexiglass room and like talking to Kirk through the through the wall. Yeah, yeah, and that was a great scene. And and part of what it all brings me to is is that Star Trek ruined my innocence because when 
I watched that. I was really devastated, right? Because at that age, I mean, nobody now really remembers the original series, right? They just know inter- or they know the ones that came after that, right? Voyager mm-hmm. and whatever Next the one generation. was. Next Generation, et cetera. Yeah. Well, we grew up on the original series, right? And mm-hmm. so I had a huge relationship to Spock. And I was, I don't know, probably 10 or so. I don't remember what when that came right. out. But I was 10, 12, you know, somewhere in there. And I was hugely impacted by the death of Spock. And then the series is like, oh, just kidding. We brought him back. And that was the first time I was like, oh, death never really ha-. It really cheated me. I, 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 I really did not like that they brought Spock back because it made his death meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a cop out. Yeah. I could see that. I've, I've, I've had various media experiences that, you know, were kind of the similar. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward to uh, the last, uh, Star Wars film where Chewie, I think we talked about this previously, Chewie is killed and then comes back five minutes later, right? <laughs> That's the yeah. point that we've gotten to. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't even remember that happening. Uh, so <laughs> well, that that's tells how you how much of an was, impact yeah. <laughs> that on me. Yeah. Okay, well, meanwhile, and we get back to this uh, using of TV monitors, which again is very futuristic of this show um, in terms of the directing and everything. Using TV monitors to tell parts of the story, we've never seen that before in Doctor Who and obviously... It, I mean, literally now, you know, 60 plus years later, we're doing that all the time. But um, but it was a very science fiction concept at the time. And so the crew is essentially imprisoned in this room, but on a TV monitor, they're watching Xenos and he's reading a document <laughs> reminding everyone that uh, since the commander is out of commission, he's now in charge. And, and you know, the rule is that since they're on the spaceship and, and everything, he has absolute power and can punish or kill people as desired. I think this is where he says uh, the the allowable penalties are you know, expulsion into space or miniaturization or some lesser penalty that you deem appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, tying into something we've experienced recently, what he's essentially saying is being on this spaceship is an emergency condition that gives me these powers, but they've been on this spaceship for thousands of years, right? So <laughs> once a politician gets to declare emergency, they'll never undeclare it. That's all I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> I don't know. We'd be hard-pressed to find any real-life yeah. uh, parallels for <laughs> yeah. that. So they're trapped in the room, and apparently one of them needs to represent the crew in this trial. And Stephen insists on it being him simply because he's going stir-crazy and he wants to get out of the room. And also he feels that somehow this will give the doctor some space to find a cure. So Stephen is put in a prison cage in that main control room, and he denies that they did this on purpose. So again, we get back to the lab leak theory. <laughs> and then as they're debating him, Stephen loses his temper, and he says, this is a primitive segment of time. <laughs> kind of insults him. And not the greatest idea to insult the people who are judging you, but uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's accused of being an agent of Refusus, the planet they're going to. So somehow, <laughs> theoretically, there's a, an intelligence on Refusus, which, of course, we have no idea at this point because they haven't reached it yet. And that intelligence realized that this ship was coming and then sent out the crew as spies. I'm trying, there's a lot of questions in there about how that would work. But. <laughs> and Stephen, after being accused of this, he says, this tells him that the nature of man in this day and age hasn't altered at all. You still fear the unknown. <laughs> and the commander, you know, the old guy is on is in his bedroom, sick, watching this on a screen. And he exclaims, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the commander is, uh, he, he's just 
he's just agreeing with the the strangers like Zentas must be just getting more and more disgusted with him because every now and then he just bursts out with something in support of the visitors here. I wanted to mention a theory that I had come up with, and this I guess this could be considered a minor spoiler since it turned out to be a false theory. I came up with a theory in the second episode that the monoids were actually... Mm-hmm the refusians and they had figured out that earth was coming so they had made up the whole story about their planet dying mm. and the, just to infiltrate them <laughs> on the trip there uh it turns out that's not the case but i think it it, it could have worked hmm. interesting well uh kind of convoluted but who knows <laughs> <laughs> so a couple people the commander's daughter and another guy have agreed to be the defenders of the crew for this trial And the guy who's defending them says he believes that they're bringing the illness was an accident. And also they might be the only ones who can cure the illness. So they shouldn't be, you know, tossed into space. And the commander in his room, and it's kind of useless because no one can hear him. But again, he agrees. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, when I watched it, I, I didn't get that he was in his own room i figured mm-hmm. he was like in a in a corner of the main room somewhere so, yeah i think that yeah. is a confusing aspect of the directing but yeah he's off in his own room watching this on a monitor later as we'll see uh, a microphone is brought to him so that he is able to actually talk to to people in the other room mm-hmm. but now the worst thing happens is you know while they're debating steven and deciding what to do with him Someone comes in and announces that one of our kind, one of the guardians, has now died from the fever. So it's not just those, you know, minority monoids dying now. It's everybody. So now, <laughs> now, now it's, it's serious. serious. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when we were kids and the whole HIV AIDS thing was going on? And it was Newsweek or Time or, you know, one of those. And they had the cover that was like, now everyone is at risk. <laughs> it, was, it was exactly this, right? <laughs> And the crowd, you know, of all guardians who, you know, so it it appears that the way their judicial system works is that you have a prosecutor and you have a defense, but then the jury is basically all the people standing in the room. (laughs) So so the crowd gets really incensed by the fact that a guardian has died. And so they find the crew guilty and the crew is sentenced to injection into space. Ejection even. Um, one of the, I thought they said injection. There might've been ejection. Oh, it could be. Yeah. They might've said injection. Uh, so one way or the other, they're going into space, but, uh, just to complicate matters all the more, Steven starts collapsing in his cage. So now he's ill too. And the doctor insists that he should be allowed to try and find a cure instead of being shot into space. And (laughs) Xenos insists, well, the mob has spoken. (laughs) We gotta, (laughs) we gotta kill you. But this is when the commander's daughter brings a microphone to the commander in his sick room, and he broadcasts to everyone that he wants the crew to be allowed to research a cure. And even though he's sick and Xenos is kind of taking control, he still has enough gravitas that Xenos has to bow to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but commander does have a good idea. He says, look, the doctor should come up with a cure, and he should use it on his own person, Stephen, as the guinea pig. And yeah. if Stephen survives then we go from there. And if he doesn't, you know. So I thought it was interesting that 56 time segments after the doctor's (laughs) time, uh, they're still using guinea pigs as experimental (laughs) subjects. (laughs) Yeah. Should have said space pigs or something. (laughs) (laughs) This is an old uh, science fiction debate, right? Because 
especially in the 50s and everything, they would like always come up with these funky names for animals and stuff on other planets. And there was an argument that like, look, just call it a rabbit. <laughs> Everyone will know what you mean. You don't need to call it a space rabbit. Um, yeah. <laughs> So the commander manages to force Zeno into agreeing that they'll give the doctor a chance to cure everybody. Again, we go back to the sensor rights here. And the doctor's excited, and he sends Dodo off to get things from the TARDIS. <laughs> now we have a, a weird little thing for Dodo that I'll explain. She says, okay. And the doctor says, when we get out of this, I'm going to teach you how to speak proper English. And there's actually a backstory to this because when she started, I think in the previous story, she was speaking in a kind of thick Cockney accent. Mm-hmm. And then the suits were like, oh, people aren't going to be able to understand her. We can't do that. So they had her change her accent. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this line from the doctor is part of that. Like, oh, this is why her speech changes, because he's going to teach her how to speak proper English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, could be. She does use uh, occasional slang throughout these episodes. Uh, she says... Uh, she uses fab and grotty, and at one point she says that something is gear, which I think means cool. So, yeah, she throws in a little of the hip-happening 60s slang now and then. Yeah, and we're approaching 68, so we're going to see this collide with Doctor Who more and more, right? Where at some point, oh, it's yeah. like uh, there's a great uh, TV channel, old game shows, right? And if you watch these old game shows, and it's really weird because... Literally around 1968, there's a point where they all go from wearing ties and suits to wearing, you know, hippie stuff like in the yeah. next episode. You know? <laughs> there's just a point where TV uh, producers are like, "Oh, we got to appeal to the kids. We got to, <laughs> we got to do this new thing. We got to be rad." <laughs> yeah. You know? So the doctor starts out by saying that everyone who's sick needs to be kept warm with blankets until he finds out more. So I guess that's okay. I don't know that it really matters, but, you know, I guess I think it's, you know, there's that whole old thing when someone's about to have a baby in in an inconvenient circumstance and someone says, oh, boil some water. And I've heard that the whole reason to tell somebody to boil some water is just to get them out of your hair while you're trying to deal with it. So telling everyone, you know, saying, hey, give everybody warm blankets uh, until I get the cure, it may just be a way to kind of say, hey, you know, leave me alone. (laughs) I like that explanation. (laughs) And then uh, tying into those live animals, the doctor sends some guardians out to collect samples from the animals because he believes that will be the source of the vaccine, you know. And then we get, again, a total call back to the sensoride, right? The doctor has a whole bunch of test tubes that he's playing around with, which we last saw him doing that in the sensorides when he was trying to do the exact same thing and come up with a cure for a disease. Hmm. And he's being assisted by a monoid. And the monoid, though he's silent because the monoids can't talk, he understands what the doctor needs, and he has it ready for him before the doctor asks for it. And the doctor is quite impressed, and he says, oh, people don't realize how intelligent you are, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, kind of a funny little moment here about the future. Um, he, you know, So he puts together a cure, and he pu- puts it on like a little patch, kind of essentially like a Band-Aid, and sticks the Band-Aid on Steven's arm. And Dodo's confused. She's like, aren't you going to inject him? And he's like, oh, that's so old fashioned. We don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a technology they, they have nowadays for some things. (laughs) And now we get (laughs) this kind of weird little thing in the story. Cause right. The whole idea was that Steven would be the Guinea pig. And if he survived, things would be good. And if he died, you know, whatever. But the doctor has just given Steven this. They have no time to see if he's recovering. In fact, we see him get worse for a little bit. 
And the doctor immediately decides everyone else should be put on this. And apparently everyone's just going to follow his order. Like, you know, so and and I think Dodo even says, wait, he was supposed to be the guinea pig. We're supposed to wait. And the doctor's like, no, we're not going to wait. Uh, I'm not sure it's a great choice. I think you should see if patient zero, uh, you know, survives or not before you give everybody else this. Yeah. 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 The, the only extenuating circumstance I could think of is that if this, if this really was like a well-known treatment that the mm. doctor had memorized back in doctor school or something, you know, <laughs> he, he might be able to just take a risk and yeah. go for yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. And then the doctor personally vaccinates the commander. Meanwhile, Zenos is standing in the control room waiting like a vulture in case the doc the treatment doesn't work. And one of the other guardians actually describes him that way, you know, waiting like a vulture. And Stephen is now going through some things. He in the moment he doesn't appear to be getting better. He's really quite disturbed. Um, but then he faints and and the doctor says his temperature has dropped. And he thinks it's gonna be fine. So again, without waiting for kind of confirmation, Dodo just runs out into the control room and tells everybody. Um, everything's going to be all right. Steven's getting better. <laughs> so, and they're all happy about this. So the doctor comes out and tells Santos that they have nothing more to worry about. And we start hearing reports of people all over recovering since he <laughs> uh, started uh, injecting them before asking. And as everyone's celebrating how, how it's gone, we see the scanner and with what we now know as Earth. And Earth, you mentioned this effect earlier. It's got all mm -hmm. these, it's like it's on fire. It's got all these smoke trails coming off of it as it goes through space. And it's in yeah. the process of destruction. It's, uh, you know, the smoke is out of proportion to the size of the <laughs> Earth. You know? But uh, but it's still kind of a somber, creepy no. effect. I, 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 I liked it. it. It is. I think it's actually really good. And, and it's just hurt by the fact that even at this point, you don't necessarily know you're looking at Earth. Right. I mean, yeah. you're just seeing this ball on the screen and it would yeah, be much more I, effective. You could, you could really tell that it was Earth. I think at this point, though, somebody does actually mention that the yeah. Earth is finally burning up or whatever. Right. Or right. And so the crew, you know, they've uh, it's like we're at the end of the sensorites, right? They're, they've the doctors cured everybody. They're leaving. Uh, the doctor tells them they can now finish their statue. And I kind of said, this statue is not that big. Why it would take 700 years? I mean, it just makes no sense at all. Well, what one of the things, I didn't mention it earlier, but as as uh, Melium, whatever her name is, mm -hmm. the, the commander's daughter, was showing off the statue, she mentioned uh, that it was going to be done slowly so that, you know, the people people on the trip could enjoy it for the you know the remainder of the trip so it might be a deliberate thing almost like a ceremonial type well uh, that would be the best argument because obviously practically it makes no sense at all you could do this in a very short period of time but you're right yeah. i mean if they want to do it ceremonially and only do a bit at a time that would make sense yeah i wasn't going to defend them earlier <laughs> but now that you bring it up i gotta <laughs> step in and Xantos is now at a complete change of mind, right? I mean, he was just ready mm -hmm. to shoot these guys out the airlock, and, you know, he was really unhappy that the commander stopped him. But now he's very appreciative of the doctor, and he thanks him. And the doctor says, you must travel with understanding as well as hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think this was meant to be much more powerful line than I uh, than I <laughs> took it as, you know. Okay, oh, yeah, what a cynical bastard. Sense. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> And now Amana drives them very slowly <laughs> to the TARDIS. Yeah. One thing you have to say, there's no traffic accidents on this <laughs> spaceship. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, I have to say, right at this point, I was uh, I was very, you know, I was pleased that, you know, we broke the mold of the typical mm-hmm. Doctor Who thing where Xantos didn't end up having to die and he ended up just turning out to be, you know, admitting his mistake and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. But I also knew that we had two full episodes <laughs> to go. So I was waiting to see just how that was going to yeah. go awry. <laughs> So this monoid drives them to the TARDIS and they get in and then the TARDIS dematerializes. <laughs> and then the monoid, you already mentioned that that going in reverse is very slow. So for like, I don't know, the next two minutes or something, we watch the monoid reversing out of the shot. <laughs> and then the TARDIS materializes again in the same place. And the doctor comes out and he's like, that's strange. Something must have been gone wrong. It appears we've come back in exactly the same place. And they rush back to the control area, and outside the control area is where the statue is, and we get a shot of its feet, and Dodo points out something about the statue, and then we get this very tantalizing slow pan up the statue, and it turns out it's been finished, and it has a monoid head. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the end of the episode. And, you know, well, we'll talk more about it, but I I also, I one of the things I really like about this story is, is... how this is structured and, and where we go next. But, uh, mm-hmm. and our next episode is The Return. <laughs> Although we've already returned, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we start off with a recap The Statue is a Monoid. <laughs> and I have to say, one of the things I, I like about this story is they use this statue really well, right? Because when they, We've seen all these drawings and designs, and we know the statue is supposed to be of a human. And also we know they've made it very clear the statue is supposed to take 700 years to complete. Mm-hmm. So the fact that when they come back, it's both completed and it has a monoid head, that just tells us a whole lot, right? And I, oh, I think yeah. that's a great way that they that they handled that part of the story. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a clever, clever little uh, gimmick or whatever you want to <laughs> call it. It's a, uh, yeah. So the room, there's nobody in the room with them uh, here, and they they check out the navigation console. It's been enhanced with an autopilot. So as far as they know, it could be completely, the ship could be completely abandoned now. So for, for millions of years, they didn't work out an autopilot, but in the last 700, they did. So it's <laughs> pretty good progress. In the oh, yeah. Well, you got to do something when you're just living your whole life on a <laughs> ship traveling one place to another. <laughs> so they... They check out the security cameras, and they see a live guardian. And Mm. what we see is that he's serving a drink to a monoid who's Mm. sitting in a (laughs) throne-like chair. Then we we see it from a rear angle shot of the the throne. So we just see the monoid's arm, uh, you know, sticking out, holding, taking the goblet. Right. Again, it's pretty clever because we don't see the monoid for most of the shot, and he's bringing up the drink. And then we see the monoid arm, arm come out, so you get this reveal. And what's going on, you know? <laughs> Cats and dogs living together. Everything has changed, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, in the next couple episodes here, we'll we'll see the monoids get served a few times, food mm-hmm. and drinks. Uh, but but we never see how they eat or drink because they <laughs> don't they have, have any no mouth, mouth yeah. Yeah, that, that we've been able to see. I, I love that. You see the director work around it in one of those where you just see a plate with some like chicken legs on it and he puts one more chicken leg down, but you didn't actually see them eat anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it works well enough. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see them just sort of 
push the eye aside and stick some food <laughs> in next to it. So on another security camera, they uh, they see a, a kitchen, mm-hmm. and the guardians, the humans, are, are working in there as sl- slaves, apparently. And one of them drops a bowl, and a monoid who looks like a guard, he's carrying something that looks like a gun, he seems to gas this guardian. Now, it turns out that these guns actually are heat guns, and the gas is... Probably just uh, stuff burning off when they heat up or something like that. Uh, the person gets gassed or, or heated <laughs> and uh, falls down to the ground. So you don't want to drop a bowl in this kitchen. <laughs> also, say, it's not like a handgun. I mean, these are more like rifles or shotguns. They don't look like yeah, that at all. They're, they're kind more... of a long thing with almost a flower-like thing at the end. That Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they're, uh, they're fairly long. And uh, into the main room where the doctor and his buddies are checking out the security cameras, a group enters. There's three monoids and two humans, uh, and the humans are deferential to the monoids. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the monoids can talk now. They're using a synthetic voice <laughs> machine, which is actually another technology that actually exists nowadays. Well, not only that, it later on became a classic science fiction thing. So David Brin got well known for doing a series called The Uplift War. And the and I believe he introduced the concept of uplift, or at least he popularized it. And the idea of uplift was taking a, you know, primitive species that couldn't communicate and altering them to the point where they became intelligent and or could talk. And with apes, that's what he he did exactly what they did here, which is the apes have a voice box hmm. that that they use to talk. So I so just throwing in again, this this story has so many science fiction elements that are very legitimate science fiction story elements in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the doctor explains that um, he and his friends are visitors who were here many centuries ago, mm-hmm. and he's says that back then we were friends of both the humans and the monoids. Mm-hmm. And the monoid who's doing the talking, you know, there's three monoids entered the room, but one of them's doing all the talking. He's got a, this collar that has a big number two on it. And <laughs> I did some research on this because I've seen this style of number before. <laughs> and it's the style of numbers they use at the bottom of your bank checks to print your account numbers. You know the one as well. You, I mean, you, Ron, know the one because you've seen the show. But, but uh, our listeners at home, they're the squarish-looking numbers that have some oddly thick sections on them, and they, they even today, people still use them to look futuristic sometimes. <laughs> but right. this font is called E13B, and uh, I did I did some research on it. <laughs> I didn't just know that off the top of my head. Uh, it was invented in the fifties. Yeah, and they're shaped the way they are because they're printed on checks with magnetic ink, and the thickness of the different parts of the numbers makes it easier for machines to read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of neat. But mm-hmm. the, especially in the 1960s, these numbers probably looked very futuristic. Mm-hmm. So the monoid number two is going to take the companions to his leader. And as you may have guessed, the numbers indicate where you rank in their society. So in the leader's room, it turns out this is the room that we saw on the screen with the guy, the monoid sitting in the throne being served a drink. The strangers are brought in, but as soon as they're brought in, the uh, 
The leader interrupts him and says, watch this. He doesn't say exactly that. Hmm. Basically, he says, watch this. And he indicates his own video screen in this room. And he's playing footage from 700 years ago. <laughs> it's when the crew last departed and the monoid chauffeur drove them to the TARDIS. So we get a get to review that all over again. And I'm going to call BS on this because there's no IT department on the planet who could keep track of a piece of video for 700 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> now, here's something where I briefly thought, uh, you know, they, they get off, the doctor and Steve, Stephen, get off the cart and go into the TARDIS without ever acknowledging the monoid chauffeur chauffeur but uh when dodo gets off the cart she turns and just briefly waves you know gives a friendly little perky wave goodbye uh before she goes into the tardis so i was momentarily thinking that that would be a a plot point like she was the one who who was nice to the monoids even when they were down. Mm. But uh, but no, it, it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> After the video clip is over, number one asks them why they came back, and he's very surprised, understandably, to find that they can't control their own machine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of a, you know, we, we so rarely see the doctor even make an effort to fix a thing. I think maybe <laughs> he's just doing this because he's lonely. That, that could be. It turns out the doctor controlled, as the as the number one puts it, he says the doctor controlled the immediate impact of the fever, but what happened afterwards was the the uh, fever mutated, and it mutated in a way that made the humans weak, mm. and that weakness plus the humans' naivety in giving tools to the monoids, including the voice boxes and the uh, the heat guns. Uh, that led to the overthrow of the humans. Mm. So number two is to take the companions to the security kitchen, which <laughs> is is more secure than the regular kitchen, I guess, <laughs> and uh, call a grand council. And then once once number two has taken them out of the room, number one talks to his human servant, Maharis, and he basically reminds him not to get any smart ideas. Yeah. yeah, number one is very, very condescending to the humans. And, you know, I think one of the themes in here we can talk about later perhaps is when the Guardians were enslaving the Monoids, they were the kind of benevolent enslavers, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, they, they were, had affection to the people they were enslaving. But the Monoids, at least number one, is not that. You know, he has contempt for these these people. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, the uh, uh, from what we saw in the 700 years ago, it seemed like the humans mostly went out of their way to be, uh, you know, civil and polite. And and if the if the monoids were treated as slaves back then, it was a very different kind of it. I mean, I I almost they were kind of second class citizens, but I I don't think there was anything really overt that. <laughs> You know, that made it clear that the monoids were subservient to the humans. I mean, it was sort of ambiguous to me whether or not they were peers or servants. Right. Well, this kind of gets back to, to Rome where obviously being a slave wasn't great. But on the other hand, as a slave, you could be quite successful and you could have your own slaves. I mean – you know, mm. you so sometimes what a slave means gets very complicated in these societies. Oh, yeah. 
So we see in the security kitchen, there's a woman, Venusa, <laughs> who's telling a man in there about the latest rumor. There are human strangers on board the ship somehow, and they've been taken prisoner. And she believes that they are from Earth millions of years ago, and they travel through time, <laughs> which is entirely accurate. Mm. And she recounts this surprisingly accurate legend that's been passed down for 700 years, <laughs> a legend about their last visit to this ship and how they dubbed the ship the Ark, which, in <laughs> fact, Dodo did. Mm. Although Stephen actually originally said two of everything, so he gave her the idea, so we should get partial credit. <laughs> but this man uh, that the lady's talking to, Venusa, this man is skeptical. Uh, he's He's kind of a cynic, she says. The doctor and company then are ushered into the kitchen, and the guard, their 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 monoid guard, reminds them that they need to be obedient. Uh, and as soon as he leaves, the guardians and the companions start talking, even though there are security cameras all over the ship. Uh, and we know that there's a security camera right in this room because we saw the doctor and his mm -hmm. friends watching what was going on mm -hmm. on that camera. Very good point. But they're talking anyway. <laughs> Back in the main room, where the place that was the courtroom and also has the the ship's control panel, all that stuff. Number one is in there addressing the other monoids. This is the Grand Council, I guess. He plans to create a monoid world on Refuses Two. He uh, he's going to destroy all the Guardians, which is to say, all the humans. <laughs> And he's even going to rewrite history to omission, to omit any mention of when the monoids were subservient. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first part of his plan to accomplish all that is to send a landing party to check out Refuses 2. Back in the security kitchen, we see a bowl of goo mm -hmm. sitting on a table, uh, and somebody adds a little drop of catalyst to it, and it reconstitutes into potatoes. It's a... Uh, <laughs> It's it's not a great special effect, but it's fun. Basically, they just had, I, th I think they just had two shots and they mm -hmm. sort of, you know, changed the transparency so one became the other. But it's fun. So they've got instant potatoes. And uh, Dodo points out that the, uh, the monoids are slow moving. Mm -hmm. uh, she's pointing this out, you know, just to the other humans in the room. Right now, there aren't other monoids. <laughs> Uh, this to me reminded me of Susan again back in the sensorites when she made fun of their flappy feet. You know, oh yeah, Do I remember that. Dodo doesn't make the joke, but it's very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She definitely uh, has noticed that uh, they're not the most graceful creatures, and this seems to prompt Stephen uh, to have an idea of seizing one of their heat guns. We. Briefly go back to the main room and see number one, the number one monoid, sent for the doctor and the girl, as he calls Dodo. Back in the security kitchen, a monoid comes to fetch the doctor and the girl, and Venusa knocks a bowl off the counter, which we know is mm. instant death penalty. But as the monoid prepares to shoot her, Stephen makes his move, and she, she knocked the bowl off the counter deliberately as a distraction. Mm. Uh, Stephen makes his move, and he's trying to wrestle the gun away, but unfortunately, more monoids enter the room, and one of them just seemingly arbitrarily kills one of the nearby humans, 
And Stephen uh, stops struggling. The monoids tell the doctor and Dodo uh, to come with him, and uh, they go off to the off to number one's room, but not Stephen. Stephen tries to follow, and and nope, he's not allowed. He wasn't invited. He's going to be held as a hostage. It turns out. Uh, so that the away team doesn't misbehave. Mm. So it turns out the away team is going to be number two, the second in command monoid, uh, with the doctor and Dodo and one of the guardians. So it's obvious that the monoids uh, are, are confident, perhaps in, their, in Stephen being a hostage, perhaps in number two's abilities, mm. perhaps both, but... Uh, but three humans and one monoid, I, you know, it, it, hmm. it seems risky to me, but. Uh, yeah, you know, these humans are stupid. So, <laughs> so we get uh, another, you know, good try, but not great <laughs> effect where the, the, the shuttle is, is leaving the ship. Now, it's not an escape pod. It looks kind of like an escape pod. It's just basically a cylinder. But instead of a Star Wars-style escape pod, it's it's actually standing upright, or what looks like upright, and uh, it, it's sort of dangling and hovering on a string as it moves toward the planet. I will say there's a lot of connection here or echo here of the beginning of Star Wars, right? Because we have these hallways of escape ships that we'll see that go out. You know, it's very, very similar to mm-hmm. the beginning of Star Wars when uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO, you know, get in that escape pod and go out, you know. So right. another one where, where and as we've talked about several times, a lot of people on Doctor Who worked on Star Wars. So, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what uh, what things influence what. Now, did you say it, that it was filmed partly in the same studios where Doctor Who was filmed? Well, that or? was the same studios as The Prisoner. Cause, oh, no, actually, okay. no, I'm sorry. It was... I think 2001 was being filmed oh, at the same okay. time as The Prisoner. But it was British studios that Star Wars was filmed in. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't have been these TV, it wouldn't have been these because these are BBC TV studios. Oh, right. Uh, versus movie studios. But yeah, I think that's what you're thinking of is, is The Prisoner in 2001. Okay. But all this stuff was happening basically at the same time, right? All these amazing science fiction uh, shows and everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. So once the once the shuttle is landed on the planet, it has a neat little effect. I think the 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 door of the shuttle uh, has a cool way of opening. It's it's hinged in the middle. So as it opens, uh, the middle kind of bows out and it folds up on itself. And it's the bottom of the door is in tracks, so it stays stable as it's as it's opening. It's a neat little effect. Um, mm-hmm. the movement could be smoother. It, it looks like it's being hand operated rather than machine controlled, but it's, it's still a clever little thing they put in there. I like it. So after the away, away team has gone out of the ship, we see inside the ship, the apparently empty ship, there's an indentation in a seat cushion. And then we see the lever to control the door move back and forth. And we hear, Hmm. <laughs> so we get the idea that something or someone invisible is in the ship, and then it departs. And the seat effect, even though it's very simple, is actually pretty well done, right? You see the seat sort of sink down uh, yeah, when he yeah. sits in it. And it, was, it was well done. Yeah, it's not bad at all. 
And then we get to see outside, and the first thing we see is Varga plants, <laughs> which you may remember from uh, the Dalek invasion. I don't remember what the title of it was, but <laughs> it was that big 12 or 13 episode uh, giant uh, thing. Dalek uh, master plan, the, the plan oh, okay. that you were not impressed with. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the Varga plants were scary, though, because they turned you into one of them, and they were covered with cotton and whatnot. And that's what these plants look like. They're covered in cotton, but uh, but they're not Varga plants, apparently. They're just other plants. Number two is wondering if their scans were wrong or if the Earthlings' scans were wrong, because mm -hmm. there seemed to be no inhabitants on this planet. There's vegetation, of course, but not no live people. Mm -hmm. He implies uh, when, when I was going to say Susan, but when Dodo, <laughs> when Dodo brings it up uh, about uh, the difficulty of getting everybody out of the ark and down onto the planet, number two doesn't directly. He he implies that it may not be. Well, he says it may not be a big deal to move them all out of the ark, but the tone that he says it in is probably what triggers Dodo to realize. They're planning to leave the humans on the ship. They're not even going to yeah. bother with all those trays of shrunken humans. Right. I mean, there are trays of shrunken uh, monoids we'll discover. So I think uh, yeah. actually it probably would be easier to move a bunch of those trays than to move a whole lot of humans or even monoids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then we see that the doctor has spotted a castle in the near distance, which, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's got three pointy spires on mm -hmm. it. So. A variation on your King Ludwig Disneyland-style <laughs> castle. And they go into the castle. It's unlocked. One of the neatest things about this whole story arc, I think, is is very brief. But when they go in there, we get some really unearthly music. It's almost <laughs> like... It's almost like Vangelis synthesizer music. <laughs> um, it seems like it might be playing... Just in the in the atmosphere of the house, you know, like mm -hmm. on the stereo system or whatever. But uh, it fades off after a while, so it's not clear if it's. I think diegetic is the term, mm -hmm. where like it's, it's not clear if that's actually p music playing in the house or if it was TV show background music. But either way, it's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. And it uh, the castle seems deserted. It's got a nice little dining room type area that uh, they they get into. Near the front door. And the monoid is frustrated that the Refusians uh, must be hiding, he thinks. <laughs> so he's he's trying to provoke them into showing themselves. He challenges them, uh, as he puts it, by picking up small vases and smashing them on the floor. So here's my callback to the beginning of our episode. Remember when I said my favorite, one of my favorite moments in Doctor Who? So <laughs> here's a monoid challenging this entire race right and he's like if you don't talk to me i'm gonna smash another vase <laughs> oh you got him by the balls there <laughs> he's like money python i'll go away or i shall taunt you a second time <laughs> yeah. So, yeah he's uh he's smashing these vases and that's gonna that's gonna make them show themselves uh and actually he's not wrong because mm -hmm. the doctor is trying to talk him out of it he says uh, something to the effect that this isn't this isn't very friendly <laughs> and uh suddenly an unplaceable voice agrees mm -hmm. it isn't clear where this voice is coming from but it's very 
very loud and noticeable. And, and it's it, a pretty good voice, kind of, you know, one of those good actor voices, uh, oh, Morgan yeah. Freeman or something like that, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it has a little bit of uh, authority and so forth. But the mono defies the voice. It's not, it's going to keep provoking until these refusings show themselves. But whatever is making this voice is in the room with them, and it forces him to put down the vase back on the table. Uh, and then it picks up the flowers on the floor from the shattered vase, and they, we see them appear to float into the uh, <laughs> another vase. And I'm, it actually isn't a bad effect. I'm wondering if maybe they played film in reverse. Yeah, like that's they, it's the classic reverse thing, yeah. yeah. So back in the main room on the Ark, number one and number three are talking. And number one reveals that he's built a bomb and he's hidden it on the ship. And then rather than saying directly <laughs> where the bomb is, because that would cut the plot short, <laughs> he points to it. And he's pointing up to the big statue. Mm -hmm. It isn't clear where in the big statue it is. I figured it was in, like, there's the statue's holding sort of a globe in front of it, and I thought it was in that. It turns out later it's in the head. Yeah, but, which made no sense. Of course it would be the globe, but okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now, it doesn't really matter where the bomb is, but it's just obvious it would be in the globe that he's holding. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would remind everyone that this is a statue made of material that will last forever, so <laughs> probably not the best thing to encase a bomb in. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well. So he's pointing to it, and the human eavesdropping, he's watching on a security camera, again with the security cameras. They're, they're all over the place in, this, mm -hmm. in these episodes. And so he um, can't hear what, he, what they say, I think, but he sees them point to it. or Anyway, yeah. I think he can hear what they mm -hmm. say, but, oh, he, but he doesn't he know can't what they're pointing where at, yeah. number one pointed. Okay, he yeah. pointed at something around there, but he isn't sure what. So then back in the security kitchen, we see the food reconstituting effect again. Mm -hmm. uh, this time it's chicken wings. So uh, they, they don't just eat potatoes. That's mm -hmm. good to know. And this guy who's been eavesdropping, he comes into the kitchen and nobody likes him. Nobody mm -hmm. trusts him because he's a collaborator. He's a willing servant of the monoids. You know, he may not be happy about it, but he he serves them well enough. If they have a term for these we'll hear they call them subject guardians yeah and he's one of those but now he's had a change of heart uh because he's heard that uh the monoids are going to kill them all which is a good reason to have a change of heart I guess. <laughs> and he explains that both the ark and the humans are to be destroyed uh at which point steven says that they'll have to find the bomb mm -hmm. <laughs> which they they will mm-hmm uh, back in the castle, the uh, doctor and the refusian are sitting at the table. We don't see the refusian, but uh, he's sitting at the table. And uh, they're having a nice chat, very civilized, very mm -hmm. even friendly, I'd say. They uh, they seem to have hit it off pretty well. The refusians used to be similar to humans. You know, they had physical, visible bodies and so forth. Uh, but there was a big solar flare disaster, and apparently that's what converted them into <laughs> what they are now. Either that or perhaps their reaction to the solar flare dis disaster. It isn't 100% clear. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they, they're converted to what they are now, and it uh, sounds like they get along with it all right, but they can't even, they can sense each other, but they can't actually see each other mm -hmm. or perceive each other like they might like to. So they're uh, they're kind of 
eager to have peaceful life forms living on the planet. Mm. They'll liven the place up a little bit, it sounds like. Outside the castle, apparently number two has been kicked out so the doctor and the refusian can talk. Uh, outside, number two is talking to the guardian human, uh, whose name is Yundum. And earlier, Yundum had overheard Dodo's speculation that, that the, the, uh, the monoids weren't going to take the humans off the ship. Mm. And Yundum is, He's on onto him. He's on to number two, and number two just goes ahead and kills him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Yindam lets out a really uh, uh, shrill scream when he dies, uh, and the doctor hears this and goes to check and finds the body. Number two has already left the scene because he's gone back to the landing craft, and in the craft, number two begins to report back to the ark. He says the planet is bountiful. It has all the resources they need. But before he can tell about the other side of the coin, about the invisible refusians, <laughs> uh, he's interrupted by the lander exploding with him inside <laughs> it. And back in the main room, number one says, Two, are you there? <laughs> Not anymore, he isn't. And then outside on the planet, uh, the doctor has seen the remains of the blown up lander and he says we'll have to wait for the next landing party (laughs) and if there is none we'll just have to stay here and that's the end of the episode (laughs) again not one of the most suspenseful (laughs) (laughs) okay next up the bomb (laughs) (laughs) so Back on uh, the Ark, Monoid number one and number three are concerned that number two's report was cut off for some reason. But number one decides they're going to proceed with their plans for the main landings, which includes bringing along the Monoid population trays, but, you know, not the human ones. (laughs) And now we see a little wrinkle in all this because number four and number six are debating whether number one is right. (laughs) It sounds... Sounds pretty dry when we lay it out like that. Number one yeah. and number two and number three and number four and number six. Yeah. But it also comes back to, like I say, if you're number one, just kill everybody else because at some point, <laughs> some point someone's going to try to come for you. Oh, yeah. Number one is very excited about how they're going to have their own planet where they're going to have their own way of life. And, you know, it doesn't really make sense why he wants to kill all the humans, because I would think you'd want a slave class to, you know, keep serving you drinks and stuff. Why would you uh, want to kill yeah. them all? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, he might have uh, had a little brain fart there. I think. <laughs> but uh, to further, you know, the intrigue, number three warns him that number four is questioning his leadership. But number one's not worried, you know, don't worry if he causes the slightest problem, we can easily get rid of him. And remember the final answer, which is locked in the head of that statue. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, on the planet, the doctor and Dodo are talking to the invisible Refusian. And again, this is such another Terranation style name because, you know, the Refusians obviously refuse to cooperate with the monsters. <laughs> so that's why they're Refusians, I guess. And the Refusian is concerned about what the monoids will mean for the peacefulness of this planet. And that's why he destroyed the launcher. So he just committed murder kind of on a hunch. (laughs) (laughs) And Dodo points out that the guardians originally had similar ideas to the refusians. And the doctor points out that the guardians weren't perfect and also did bad things. And they were selfish. And 
That's why they were conquered by the Monoids. And I th- uh, one of the things I like about this story is, you know, we hear these days about colonialism and all this. This story really deals with all the aspects of that, right? Of mm-hmm. enslaving a race, being kind toward that race, but enslaving them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the people doing the enslaving have different opinions. People of the race are enslaving have different opinions. I mean, this is, you know, pretty sophisticated um handling of of this whole thing you know oh yeah because it's not like when the monoids become the leaders that they're all good either but it's also not i mean there is a little bit of like oh when the savages take over they're going to be savages but you know there are people on the monoid side who don't agree with that right so so Mm -hmm. there's just you know i think it's interesting and i think there's a lot of complexity in here uh dodo said that uh you know some of the guardians did want to be better and the Refusian says, look, okay, we're going to give one day for the Guardians to fix everything before we destroy everybody. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess that's being very, uh, you know, considerate. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Stephen is stuck in the kitchen. He's trying to come up with a plan. But as we mentioned, they're guarded by subject Guardians, the ones who collaborate with the Monoids. And those people aren't going to help them. But Stephen says maybe they can be made to help without knowing it. So, you know, everybody trapped in prison has the same ideas, you know. So, meanwhile, the Guardians are loading trays of freeze-dried monoids onto the ships. (laughs) And uh, then, you know, I guess back on the planet, monoid number one is served by a subject Guardian. And once the Guardian leaves, the monoid, again, is quite insulting about his intelligence. Oh, he's so stupid. He doesn't know what we're going to do. It's, you know, <laughs> really kind of goes overboard. Uh, back in the kitchen, Stephen and a woman distract a subject Guardian who comes in, and that allows some other people to sneak out the door behind him. And the ones who get out, uh, you know, when they get a chance, they open the kitchen door so Stephen and the others can leave. And Stephen says they need to find the bomb, but, of course, they don't know where it is yet. Yeah. And as they're looking, Stephen and the woman come across the ships that are being launched. Again, very similar to the whole Star Wars thing of these little, you know, launchers going out. We get this amazing special effect with the ships launching into space, and we don't see any strings whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, That's just a blatant lie. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then it turns out all the monoids have left the ship, and Stephen and company have got to find the bomb. So, monoids number one and three land on the planet and get out, and number one immediately declares the planet theirs. <laughs> and then they see that um, there's an exploded launcher, and now they they know why number two stopped reporting to them. <laughs> and number one says, we must find who exploded that launcher and then destroy them. So, number one and number three move on. <laughs> it's funny just doing all these numbers. And number four says that number one made a mistake by allowing him and number six to come here because, you know, they're going to undermine them. And the doctor and Dodo sneak into a launcher behind their backs and they contact Stephen and the woman over the radio. And the doctor doesn't know where the bomb is, but he's going to send some of the launchers back to the Ark. And it turns out the invisible Refusian is sitting next to them listening to all this. <laughs> and, uh, Dodo and the Refusian want to know how the doctor is going to get the launchers back. And the doctor points out that the Refusians, being invisible, could get into them and fly them back because the monoids won't see them. (laughs) And I think he says something about how the the controls are very easy to operate. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. Piloting a spaceship, uh, still, you'd want some experience. But, yeah, well, Refusians are smart. And the Refusian agrees to this plan. 
And then getting out, the doctor and Dodo encounter a couple of random monoids who capture them and say they'll be brought to number one. <laughs> and the doctor says, delighted, delighted. So it's clearly <laughs> part of all part of his plan. And as the doctor and Dodo are taken away, the launchers mysteriously launch. And number three is very upset. And, you know, he says, uh, who is it that travels in that launcher? We've seen no one. <laughs> the doctor keeps coming back to this. He's like, well, to tell you the truth, neither have we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is technically the truth. Yep. <laughs> and on the Ark, a launcher returns, but when they open it, it's empty. <laughs> and then they hear an eerie laugh. <laughs> it's it's not too sinister because we already Man. know the Refusians are friendly. Or we right. think maybe they're going to do the old double cross. <laughs> Back on the planet, number one is interrogating the doctor about where the Refusians are. (laughs) And the doctor doubles down, I don't know, I haven't seen one. (laughs) (laughs) Number one is not amused. And number four takes this moment to challenge number one. He doesn't believe they should have come here. They will all go back. They're going to go back to the Ark, but they're going to have to deal with that bomb. And for no particular reason, number one now explains in interesting detail where the bomb is and <laughs> how hard it'll be to deal with because of how heavy the statue is. And now the doctor and Dodo know where the bomb is. <laughs> number four and his people leave. They're going to return to the ship. But guess what? Number one isn't going to let them leave alive, so his people follow. Back on the ship, they're debating why they shouldn't just take all the launchers to the planet to keep from being blown up. And Stephen reminds them of that all of humanity is, you know, freeze-dried in these in these plates. Although somehow the monoids were able to get their people onto the launcher, so theoretically the humans could, but maybe there are more humans to, to load. Mm-hmm. So the others decide to leave because they don't want to get blown up, and Stephen and the woman stay because they figure they can deal with the bomb. And then back on the planet, there's an epic battle between the forces of number one and number four. And this goes on for quite a while to the point where it really is just kind of filling time, right? We just see them running away from each other and shooting each other and yeah. all this stuff. Meanwhile, a launcher lands and one of the subject guardians gets out first and he runs off to find his master. And he finds his master and calls out to him. And, of course, his master immediately vaporizes him. So. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's the fate of a collaborator. Yeah. And meanwhile, the other guardians who are on that ship slip away while the monoids fight each other. And one of the good guardians reaches the doctor and Dodo and lets them know that the bomb hasn't gone off yet. And now that they know where it is, the doctor and Dodo head out to reach a launcher. So, and kind of disturbing here. They're just stepping over all these dead monoids, you know, lots of death (laughs) and destruction in this. And they start flying back to the Ark while the doctor fires up the radio and we never hear him talking to Stephen and company, but it's clear uh, next shot that Stephen and company know now where the bomb is from him. But the statue is too heavy for them to move it. However, the invisible Refusian says he can help. And it turns out that along with being invisible, Refusians are incredibly strong. <laughs> so <laughs> or it he, could be telekinesis. Too. Yeah, it's possible. So he lifts up the statue and takes it to the launching bay. And they send it into space. Actually, again, a pretty good, you know, little sequence where you see this huge statue sort of tipping into space, and then it goes out and explodes. Yeah, although it, the way they do it, it actually, they, they like, tip it off the edge of the launching bay. So it must be, like, falling into the gravity of mm. the planet or something. <laughs> so on the planet, the remaining Guardians say they're going to be okay if the Refusians will help them. And the Refusians agree with one condition— 
the Guardians and the Monoids must come to peace with each other. And the Doctor points out that the Guardians once took responsibility for the welfare of the Monoids, even as they treated them as slaves. And the Guardians agree to these terms, and the Doctor says to the main Guardian, you must travel with understanding as well as hope. And this is a callback, but the Doctor kind of ruins it because he says, you know, I once said that to one of your ancestors a long time ago. (laughs) It's kind of like explaining the joke, you know. Yeah. And besides which, I mean, as as profound statements go, I don't know, it just doesn't really doesn't doesn't really get me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean it's 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 accurate enough. Both their understanding and hope are both good things. It's just not a you know, it's not that piquant to me. I don't know. <laughs> not up there with my children won't be judged by the color of their skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not 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 top level oratory. Yeah. Uh, so now the crew is driven away once again, and this is actually a funny little echo because remember the last time they were driven to the TARDIS, it was by a monoid, and this time they're driven by a guardian. And the guardians debate whether future generations will believe in the Doctor or treat him as a legend. <laughs> <laughs> and we see on a monitor the TARDIS dematerializing. So you know we might think the story is over, but it's not quite over yet. In the control room, I noticed this right off. Immediately, so we see Stephen and the Doctor, and Stephen is now in a completely different outfit with these, uh, with this sort of zebra-striped shirt, which is out of nowhere. You know, I didn't even notice uh, Stephen's outfit, but I did yeah. notice Dodo's. Yeah, then Dodo comes that, in. Yeah, she's got that like uh, it's a little uh, like a biker cap or something. I don't know. Yeah, and her clothes are very mod, right? They've got these shapes on them and everything. Again, it's this very sixties thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, the doctor in the corner coughs, and when we look at him, he's semi-transparent, and then yeah, he begins... Hmm? Sort of fading in and out, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, he begins fully disappearing, and he says this has nothing to do with... You know, Dodo's like, oh, you know, maybe he's got the cough from the, the whole monoid refusion thing. Maybe the refusions did something to him. The doctor says, no, this has nothing to do with the refusions. This is something far more serious. We're in grave danger. This is some form of attack. And it's the end of the episode. <laughs> and I, I'm guessing from from the title of the next episode that I saw on BritBox, I'm guessing we missed some of the episodes of the, uh, uh, or at least we have to go to reconstructions. Yeah, for the yeah, next the next one is missing. Arc. So a little bit of context for why the Doctor turns invisible. The producers were getting sick of working with William Hartnell. Now, I think it's a little bit unfair because if you think about it, in the last few stories, it might be hard to tell with the reconstructions, but he's not been screwing up his lines or anything. He actually did way worse other times Hmm. earlier in the series. But they were just tired of dealing with him. So (laughs) they came up with this idea for the next story. They would turn him invisible so they could essentially have a story without Hartnell and see if they could make it work. Oh, boy. And well, that's what this what is a, about. What a bunch of bums. Hartnell's, yeah. Hartnell's the best thing about the show. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the next story is a controversial one, This and missing, The Celestial Toymaker. And it's controversial because we're essentially talking about Yellowface. Oh, okay, like an Asian type. Yeah, it's an Asian bad guy who's the toy maker. Now, I do not know the story. I've never watched it because I don't watch – or I didn't (laughs) before this one because I didn't watch Reconstruction. So it'll it'll be new to me. We will 
see, um, you know, what we think about this. <laughs> All right. So that said, uh, let's talk about this story. Um, I mentioned that I like a lot about it. You know, I like that it has a lot of really great science fiction concepts in it that we don't normally see in Doctor Who from the generation ship. And, but also, one thing I really like that happens very rarely in Doctor Who is the idea that we get to see, after they fix everything and leave, we get to see what actually happened, right? The impact they actually had on a society. And this was a pretty massive impact they had, and we would never know it in a regular story, right? We would just think everything had been fine and, and all that. So, and so, I mean, aside from kind of the dorky costumes for the monoids and the really weird, like the really weird thing about the refusians being invisible. But again, I just, I so love the idea that, oh, if you, if you don't work with us, we'll smash another one of your vases. <laughs> uh, but overall, I just think this is an ambitious story with a lot of great science fiction stuff in it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I'm a fan of it, but a lot of people think it's pretty dorky. So that's where we, uh, mm. we come to you, Guy, as the normal person. <laughs> is this <laughs> worth watching for a modern viewer? Uh, it, I'd say it is dorky, but it's also, uh, it's also fun. I really, uh, I, I, did, uh, I did enjoy it. Um, so I'd say it's worth watching, uh, not necessarily, uh, to use your original example of, you know, not something you'd say, sit down on the couch and watch this. You got to see this. Um, but certainly if you have any enthusiasm for Dr. Who overall, um, this, uh, this is probably one of the more entertaining story arcs, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, uh, I'd say worth watching. Okay. Anything else we want to talk about with this? No, I, I guess I we should talk a little about Dodo at least to mm -hmm. point out uh, she's. You mentioned I think I don't remember exactly what you said, but you said there's uh, some disagreement among fans about uh, whether you know what kind of character she is or if they like her. I don't remember exactly mm. what you said, but you didn't go into any great detail based on these first episodes. I'm inclined. Uh, I'm inclined to like her. She, she does seem to be occasionally a little scatterbrained, but mm -hmm. she also occasionally seems to come up with some, you know, solid ideas and she seems, she seems likable. You know, she has the, the 60s slang. I could hmm. see that getting out of hand if they don't rein it in. But, uh, you know, so far, so far I'm inclined to, uh, I'm inclined to like her. I, I definitely, have a more warm initial impression of her than I did of uh, of Vicky. Mm. And uh, she certainly has a more unique character than Vicky. I mean, Vicky was kind of generic. Mm. Mm. So so far so good is on the dodo front. Okay, well we'll see how that goes. And I have no idea, you know, how she plays out in the next story, etc. Uh. Okay, well we'll see you next week with the Celestial Toy Maker. All right. Hey.